Hey guys, welcome back. This is Gabby. This is Megan. And this is episode three of Behind the Bench. The Gavels podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about the removal of tents from Mass and Cass, Liam Connors' hat tip, shout out, and what's happening on campus. Stay tuned. So today we're going to be talking about the removal of tents from Mass and Cass. And as Gabby and I are not Massachusetts residents, we both had to kind of brush up on what was going on around there. So Mass and Cass is a tent city that's around the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard in downtown Boston. Yeah, the Boston Globe called it the epicenter of homelessness and the opioid addiction in Massachusetts. So pretty damning words. And for a long time, it's been seen as a threat to the safety and health of the public, seeing as crime rates have increased, diseases are spreading there. Yeah, and I mean, there have been multiple attempts to, you know, kind of not clean this up, but figure out just genuinely what to do with mm-hmm. it and how you approach such a big problem that have so many, like, systemic issues coming at you yeah. from that side. especially where do homeless populations go? You know, we've seen oh, these yeah. tents come up in other parts of the cities, and every time that there's, like, a sweep-through cleanup, they just disperses into the city and can mm-hmm. have really negative consequences for the people that are le- living there yeah. because they can lose their possessions or even contact with social service workers who are providing them resources and whatnot. Yeah, and I know, I mean, I think it would be helpful for at least me to kind of, you know, go over the policies of what the old mayor and the new mayor are trying to do now. I mean, I know that former mayor Kim Janey announced plans to remove mass and cast encampments by, like, just completely clearing up the area. Um, but, you know, when current mayor Michelle Wu was elected, she halted that order, which at first I think a lot of people were confused by, but then she kind of introduced her own plan to remove encampments by January 12th. And she says that her difference is that she's pursuing a public health approach. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding local neighborhoods and business owners about how to deal with the crisis. Um, But so far, I'm liking what I'm seeing from Michelle Wu. There were flyers posted notifying residents for removal that said help is available, so they were aware. Um, And the major part of Wu is that with the removal of the tent encampments, they're providing temporary transitional housing Um, And this housing is also low threshold housing, for those Mm -hmm. of you that don't know what that means. Sobriety is not required to reside in the housing. Um, And with this temporary housing, there's other services like substance abuse and mental health counseling, Mm -hmm. um, medical and prescription drug use supervision, and in some cases, acute care for those in immediate danger of overdosing. I'm going to be pessimistic for a second. I'm hoping that those services are there and that Mm -hmm. they're continuing, but I am just a bit worried that, yes, they're taking the tents away, and that is one, that is a good thing. You know, this was kind of creating more problems than it was, you know, helping people. But I just, I'm not sure how long that those will stay in place. Yeah. And as of January 15th, CBS Boston had reported that over 150 people found temporary housing, which is about as many people were estimated to reside in Mass and Cass. But it's pretty obvious that there's more than 150 people in Boston that are Mm -hmm. homeless. So it's like, how do we get these resources to the rest of the city if this is going to remain long-term? I don't think Maz and Cass really could have, anyone, honestly, just the whole thing could have survived for much longer. It was, doing the research for this was really tough. It was so heartbreaking seeing kind of, there was a Facebook group called, you know, Missing MS and Cass and all these you know, family members would mm-hmm. say, you know, I haven't seen my son in months. Is he there? Can you contact me? And, you know, stuff like that. You see that over and over in those types of places. And, you know, you hope that these people are getting help and that this movement is going to be something to help them. But, you know, this 
this temporary housing is only be- the beginning. And, you know, mm-hmm. City Councilman Frank Barker, his kind of critique was saying that, okay, well, they're housed, and that is great, but this housing has to come in tandem with intervention and treatment. Mm-hmm. He says that he would prefer intervention and treatment first, and I agree, but also I think getting them out of, you know, a space that could be, like, very triggering to addiction would probably be something that you would want to do, you know, a yeah. parallel. I think Wu's, the essence of her approach is that she doesn't want to just sweep through and move mass and cast to a different area and let people disperse. It's that mm-hmm. you want to fix it. It's like you don't want to treat the symptoms of this issue. You want to address the root cause so that these people don't have to continue struggling without any systemic support or resources from the city. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if anyone knows what Pulse is, but it's kind of you take you know theology and philosophy together, but there's also a service component. And my service happens to be at the hospital Lemuel Shattuck, it is a state-funded hospital where um, right now, actually, Mass and Cast temporary housing is being placed. So I can kind of see, you know, what they're building and who's there and how many people they're allowing there right now. And the houses, they seem, they seem temporary. So it seems kind of that, you know, they are making the effort to house these people, but they do want to emphasize that, you know, there is going to be, you know, motive and hope to kind of get out into a more permanent sense of housing. Which is good. Mm-hmm. I'm more so hoping that this is a long-term humanitarian approach, that we're treating housing as a human right, because, you know, for a lot of people who are struggling with addiction and homelessness, it's hard to get sober if you yes. don't have a, a warm home to go to. Exactly. Um, so I'm hoping that we are shifting our perspective into being more emphasizing on the importance of long-term mechanisms to keep people out of being homeless from the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm from Austin, Texas, and just this past year they implemented a really strict and detrimental homeless ban. And it honestly just, it it sucks. And it's so sad. And I've seen firsthand really negative consequences on my local communities. So I'm hoping that policies like these are going to spread to other cities if successful. And hopefully her approach can act as a model for other places that are struggling with large homeless populations like LA in New York, and how can we successfully implement a way to keep people out of these situations? Yeah, so we are going to, you know, keep looking at this because it is kind of a, you know, developing and recent situation, but with a critical eye. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're hopeful for policies, but we're going to continue holding a high standard for how we should be treating people in our city. Mm -hmm. So today we're interviewing Liam Connor. He's only a freshman, but he's already written some truly great articles. Um, discussing everything from BC's academic advising culture to Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. And he also makes a self-proclaimed mean chocolate chip pancake. Liam, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm happy to have you We're here. We're so glad you're here. All right. So do you mind giving us a brief summary of your article? Um, yeah. Yeah. What's the title of your article? First so off? true. Do you know the title? I don't know the title. Okay, so doesn't know the title. I don't know the title, but the... Credibility gone. (laughs) The gist of it is that um, it was just recently found in the middle of December, um, thanks to ProPublica, which is uh, an investigative, like, journalist firm, essentially. Uh, They found that the Boston Police Department was using a lot of hidden funds to uh, finance uh, projects to use, like, spyware technology. And essentially what the spyware is doing is uh, it's acting as like a fake cell tower 
uh, and it's tapping into the citizens of Boston, it's tapping into their phones um, and kind of tracking their movement. And of course, the, the intent is, or at least the stated intent, is that it's used for missing persons or possible suspects and things like that. But really, if you're using uh, funds that is not recorded, these funds are not um, recorded and monitored by the Boston City Council, um, there, there has to be some kind of malicious intent behind that. So that was just recently found. Uh, it was about six, I think it was $627,000 used by the Boston Police Department. Um, and this is just one of many cases throughout the country of police departments doing this. Yeah, and you talked about, you know, how it's funded by civil asset forfeiture. I had to look up what that was. So if you mind giving a little backstory, because I think that could give some context. Yeah, so civil asset forfeiture is essentially anything, any um, asset that, uh, like money or even a home uh, could count, anything that is believed to be a part of a crime. Say when uh, police officers do some, like a a drug bust or something like that, any, any money that they believe associated with the drug trade, they will take that and seize that. And that becomes, that uh, enters the fund that we're talking about. It's, the term is a slush fund, mm-hmm. essentially. And it's, it's the same, same idea with police officers as with like the district attorney's office, um, anything that they acquire, um, which could be homes, anything that's believed to be associated and connected with a crime of some sort is seized by the government and it uh, enters these funds um, but these funds are not monitored tightly at all. So what procedures, if any, are in place to monitor this sort of financial seizure? Um, so the, I believe the procurement office of the uh, Boston City Council, they, they monitor how much is in it, and they get a yearly report of how much is in the fund. But uh, besides that, there is really nothing strict in place. There have been um, some movements by... Uh, I think the Massachusetts state legislature has passed um, something that requires reporting on any use of of funds by uh, bureaucratic departments like the police department or like the um, district attorney's office. So inquiring not just how much money they have, but what they're spending on, exactly. Yeah, exactly. What what they're using this money for needs to be reported. Um, But it says it in my article, I think it was maybe about two out of the 350 mm-hmm. local and state police departments were reporting, um, while the others essentially were like, oh, we didn't know this was mandatory. We just thought this was suggested. Uh, mm-hmm. So really, there's nothing strict in place that's preventing this. You also talked about you know, the positive effects of the Stingray technology, but do you, do you think that those positive effects kind of have any weight when you talk about the negatives? Do you think this can be rehabilitated at all? To be helpful, I I think it, it definitely is positive and like technology is extremely helpful and, and it has helped in the past to find um, either missing persons or uh, convicts or suspects in a case. Um, but at the same time, when it, what it does is, especially since it's being implemented and being bought by a hidden fund and by something that's not reported, the um, the message behind that is kind of like, well, what exactly is going on? Yeah. Is there has to be some kind of malicious intent? Yeah, if you can't tell us why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Money, if, if you're not I'm reporting, using it. my information yeah. for then like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, and you mentioned that this is happening 
in cities all over. But if this is happening in an overwhelmingly democratic city like Boston, do you think, like, to what extent is this happening elsewhere in the country? Um, I think it's probably happening in every major city. I know um, I wrote I wrote an article, actually, um, about a book about essentially the racialization of a Muslim. And it, uh, the speaker, Sahar Aziz, uh, mentioned in New York, uh, the police department in 2011, I believe, was running essentially an underground like surveillance mm-hmm. kind of thing, mm-hmm. same, same kind of thing. Guns, yeah, and guns. what they were doing was they were um, uh, disproportionately targeting mosques mm-hmm. and Muslim community centers and homes of known Muslims. Blatant profiling. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's definitely happening in every city, no matter what. And a lot of, a lot of that can be credited to um, kind of like post 9-11 hysteria mm-hmm. um, and like the Patriot Act being one of the most controversial um, surveillance mm. uh, bills yeah. ever passed, whole kind of thing that allows all of the surveillance to happen. Um, so really, I think it's happening everywhere. And it's not really just like an isolated incident. It's more of a systemic issue within our police departments mm-hmm. and spending and the way that we view public safety. Um, yeah. So this was a news piece, but, you know, we <laughs> have an opinion. Uh-huh. So what are your thoughts on this issue? Do you think it's constitutional? What are the your personal qualms and ethical considerations when doing this research? Well, I think this is definitely wrong, and I think it, it exposes a pretty uh, terrible issue within our system, specifically our policing system. And I think what this calls for is more of a move from civil asset forfeiture should not go to the bureaucracy that Mm -hmm. obtains it um, because it can be used in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And especially what you're doing, a, a lot of these cases, since a lot of them are like drug busts and things like that, you're kind of taking money away from people who their only means of making money is through this illegal trade. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's not just about transparency. It's kind of about dispossession within communities. Mm-hmm. And then what they're using this money for is to then find more of those people and take more of that money. Um, and so there has been a massive uh, movement through federal and state governments to kind of make the move to uh, put this in a statewide fund to fund schools, fund the things that we actually, I believe, I personally believe should fund um, and not focus as much on security and things like that. So, longtime listeners, aka you've listened to the two episodes we've put out, you have seen us interview two people. <laughs> but we're starting a new segment where we ask all of our interviewees if you could teach a class, what would you teach this class on? And why? Oh, yes, and why? And why? Liam. Um, <laughs> Liam, give your thoughts. <laughs> I think, see, I want to be a professor, and I'm an English major, so I think... <laughs> so am I. <laughs> um, I think I would probably do something on Irish literature. Oh. Um, that definitely, I don't know, that, like, James Joyce and Oscar Wilde and things like that, that's... A few of my favorite um, writers. So I'd probably teach something on that, but maybe connect it to modern Irish society and yeah. I, I would take great. your class. Okay. I would take it. Good. Consensus. <laughs> Professor Connor has a Yes, perfect. Well, thank you so much yes. for 
coming in with us and answering questions. So fun. Thank you, guys. Our last and final segment of this episode, what's up in Chestnut Hill? What's going on on campus? Oh, yeah. We got a bird's eye view. I actually hated that. (laughs) Um, So basically, what is happening is the Schiller Institute is open, finally. We've waited Mm -hmm. two years for that bad boy. We have two classes in there, but the... The glass windows, very distracting. Oh, really? I have none. That's right. I'm just a woman in STEM. Oh, God. Okay. Um, The building cost $150 million. So a lot more than the million-dollar stairs. Mm, It's like $150 million stairs. Nope. Other recent news on campus, Mac has been renovated. Yes. Just, and it's awesome. They've got grab-and-go smoothies. Mm-hmm. They've got new seating. they got better food for sure. Yes, they just, do. Just another reminder. They have really good smoothies, too. Yes, the mm-hmm. grab-and-go smoothies are so good. Another reminder about how class of 2024, Megan and I were robbed. Mm-hmm. Also, second week of school. I'm loving my classes. It's good to be back, but. See, it is the last day of ad drop as we're recording this, and I'm still trying to figure out if I should drop one of my classes or not. It's just, why don't we get a syllabus week? Mm. I feel like we didn't even have break. I'm so tired. We had readings due on the first day of class for we did our post class. Mm-hmm. That was rough. That was. Twas. <laughs> Twas rough. I'm smarter already. Well, we hope streets. that everybody is having a good start to the semester. Yes. We are so glad that you tuned in for our third episode. Mm-hmm. Again, this is Gabby. This is Megan. And you've been Behind, Behind the, the Bench. bench.